Um, allow me to ask this. If you can remember flannel graphs, could you raise your hand? If you do not know what I'm talking about, could you raise your hand? Yeah, it's, uh, it's what I expected. Something. That, ask one of those. If you don't know what flannel graphs are, ask one of those who raised uh, their hands. We hold them in dear regard, those of us who are of a certain age. Uh, but it was great. The Good Samaritan, lots of uh, things to get stuck on that flannel graph, and we could see the various characters, the priest and the Levite, all walking past this guy who'd got badly beaten up, and the Good Samaritan doing his stuff uh, at the end. But even if you have no understanding of the Bible at all, you're still likely to be familiar with this story. It's actually entered into our cultural currency. To be a good Samaritan is a widely understood phrase and one that fits well with our society's changing values. It's come to mean being kind to everyone you meet, especially to those who are in need. And we use the expression, oh, they're a good Samaritan. The only problem with that summary is that's not what this passage is all about. And to get at the heart of things, we're going to make four observations. Number one, there's a good but confused question. There's a good but confused question. You see, it would seem that there's a group of people sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him, learning from this new rabbi, as was the way that they did then. When one of them stands up and asks a question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a good question. A very good question. Indeed, it's a question that we should all ask. It's a question about what happens after I die. And actually, that's a situation every single one of us will face. What then? And how do I make sure that my eternal destination is one of eternal joy and blessing rather than eternal sorrow and suffering? Actually, there's probably no more important question for you this evening than that one. And certainly for the questioner, someone who was skilled in trying to understand Jewish laws and customs, this had the added edge of wanting to know how to be among God's special people at the end of time. But although it was a good question asking about something that's vital to each one of us, there was an inbuilt confusion to what he asked. What must I do to inherit? Now, do you see the problem? He rightly understood that God's salvation is a free gift. It's actually something that's implied in the Greek word that's translated here, inherit, but he was asking, what were the conditions? What were the actions that he had to perform? What rules did he have to obey so that he might inherit? My mum died last July. And for me and my brothers to inherit her estate, we haven't had to do 
a thing. Just being part of the family was qualification enough. It's ours because we were her children. And it's this confusion that Jesus addresses in this incident. If we don't get that, then we miss out on the real significance of this episode. So Jesus attempts to draw out the questioner and get behind and expose the reasoning that could only conceive of God in terms of performance and reward. So there's a good but confused question. But then secondly, I notice there's a good but conditional response. A good but conditional response. Luke 10 Verse 26 to 29, what is written in the Lord, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, Jesus asks this expert in Jewish law what was written in the law. And, and when Jesus talks about the law, what he meant was what we know as the Old Testament, actually more specifically, their first five books. And notice that Jesus doesn't ask what were the latest opinions of the rabbis, what's the latest theories going around. That was a big business then. But rather he asks him what was written what God himself had definitely revealed in Scripture. And to this, the expert in Jewish law responded with quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19, to which Jesus responded by telling them, you've got it right, do that, and you'll live. Love God with your whole being and your neighbor as yourself, and you'll live. You'll have eternal life. Here's the rub. You can't. You can't love God like that. You can't love your neighbor as yourself. It's a good, but it's an impossible standard. It's actually there to make us despair. It's there to show us how high and holy are the demands of Almighty God and to expose how flawed and sinful our own responses are. But the lawyer didn't see it. He didn't get it. In fact, Luke makes clear to us that his original question was a, a ploy. He was trying to get some kudos amongst his peers by exposing Jesus before others as a false prophet and a dodgy teacher. So he follows up by asking Jesus who these neighbors were that they were supposed to love if they wanted to get into heaven. He assumed, you see, that this command was conditional, that it was limited to a particular group. You see, one of the great concerns of the religious leaders of that day about Jesus was that he was opening the door of salvation too wide. Luke's actually already, as we've been working through that gospel, pointed out numerous occasions where Jesus offended the religious leaders, because of this. For example, in Luke 4, the folk of Nazareth 
take offense that he goes soft on the Gentiles. In Luke 5, he's criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 6, he preached that you should love your enemies. In Luke 7, he heals the servant of a Roman centurion. The servant of a Roman centurion of all things. In Luke 8, he cures the demonically possessed and the ceremonially impure. No, this was opening the door up a bit too wide. For the Jewish leaders understood heaven as a banquet from which all non-Jews would be excluded. They were not their neighbors. So much so that around the time of Christ, there were Aramaic translations of the Hebrew scriptures. These translations were known as the Targums. They were in circulation, and they translated Isaiah's vision of this heavenly banquet like this. Yahweh of hosts will make it for all the peoples in this mountain a meal. And although they supposed it an honor, it will be a shame for them. And great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. You see, uh, it was translating a passage in Isaiah that said nothing like that, but indicated that everyone was going to be called from all the nations. Ah, they said he must have got it wrong. So we just want you to understand, in our translation, they're going to get a plague, they're going to die off. Or take the Jewish book of Enoch, which was written about 290 BC, which describes this messianic banquet and tells here how the angel of death will kill all the Gentiles present and that the true Jews will have to wade through blood and gore to get to sit down with Messiah. Or there's a document from the time from the Qumran community called the Messianic Rule, which declares with certainty that no Gentile will be present at the great banquet in heaven. Only pious Jews. So this Jewish lawyer wants to narrow down what the scripture says when it declares that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Because he doesn't see it in the same way. So his question, who's my neighbor, Jesus, is a very loaded question. Which moves us thirdly to notice that there's a good but customized scenario. There's a good but customized scenario. Okay, look, we're there. We're there. At long last, we've reached the point where we can look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. But actually, by looking at the context of this parable, we've seen that its main purpose is not encouraging us to be kind to everyone, although, let me say, this is a good thing. But he tells this story to actually reveal this is an impossibility. And why I say this is a customized scenario is because we find exactly the same question asked eight chapters later in Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 18, verse 18, it says there, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, here's the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the illustration that Jesus used then 
is different from the illustration we have there. It's changed to suit the person who asked the question. You see, there, in that story, it was a rich young ruler being told to sell everything he had, which made him sad as this exposed his covetous heart. It revealed him as a, a sinner. And here, he is addressing this Jewish religious expert. And so it's a story about Jewish religious leaders ignoring someone who'd been badly beaten up on the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Once again, exposing the law-breaking, neighbor-ignoring behavior of a priest and a Levite and revealing how a hated Samaritan did what they should have done. By the way, did you notice that when Jesus actually uh, asked him the question, uh, who, who's, uh, who's the neighbor there? Who do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Do you notice the expert in the law? He doesn't say the Samaritan. He can't even use the name Samaritan. Such is the hatred for that group. The one who had mercy on him. Now understand this. You see, what we've got here is a good story that models love for our neighbors and what it should look like. And without doubt, as underlined elsewhere in the Bible, followers of Jesus Christ should show costly, thoughtful, sacrificial love to all those that they come into contact with, especially those who might be considered their hardest and vilest opponents. The scripture is clear. That's what we should do. But that's not the main point of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus here is answering the question of the expert in Jewish law who wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And the story makes clear he was incapable of perfectly keeping God's law. There was Nothing he could do to inherit eternal life. And my friends, there's nothing we can do to perfectly satisfy the demands of God's holy character. You see, if you think you're good enough, if you think your behavior is completely holy and pure in every regard, if you think your motivation is always spotless, then I have to say this. You don't know yourself, you don't know God, and you don't know the Bible. Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, and then verse 20. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. So you see, this actually begs a massive question. If I want to go to heaven, if I want to be right with God, if I want to live life to the max, then what can I do? If the clear answer of Jesus to the expert in the Jewish law is that he couldn't do it, that he couldn't go and do likewise, 
then what hope do I have? What answer is there for someone like me? Well, that's why Luke then goes on to include the story of Jesus visiting the home of Mary and Martha. You might have thought, why did they go and read that next section? It just doesn't seem connected. My friends, it is absolutely connected. So fourthly, finally, I want us to notice there's a good but costly choice. There's a good but costly choice. Do you remember we started this whole story, this whole incident with people sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him before the Jewish law expert stood up to ask a question. So uh, again, we find something familiar in this home that Jesus has now gone into. Verse 39, Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had, to what he said. In fact, so uh, intent was Mary's attention upon Jesus that she didn't give the help that her sister Martha expected. So in verse 40, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And when Jesus responds, the inference is clear. Practical service It's good, and it's necessary, and it has its place. But what matters above all, what is most important, is paying attention to Jesus. Now, in in Luke's Gospel, we're we're looking at a a section that's sort of held together, which began in chapter 9, verse 51. And there we notice that the journey to Jerusalem had begun. Jesus is on his way now to the cross. The first half of the gospel was, who is Jesus? And then we read the the disciples got it. They said, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one, the anointed one. You're the one that we've been expecting for centuries upon centuries in our history. And they got it. But then when they'd got it, then he's starting to teach his disciples about the necessity for him to die on a cross. It's no longer who is Jesus, but what did he come to do? And Luke 9, verse 44. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And no doubt this was increasingly at the heart of what he taught his followers when Mary was present. The Messiah had come to die. The Messiah had come to lay down his life for others as a substitutionary sacrifice. All those pictures that they'd had of lambs and goats and all these animals getting sacrificed. It now makes sense. It was a picture. It was pointing us forward to that once for all, final, perfect sacrifice. That's what Jesus says he'd come to do. And Jesus was teaching that the law could only ever be fulfilled through him. He was the only one who could keep the law completely. And that by his death, in the place of sinners, it was going to be possible for people to be credited with a righteousness, his righteousness, that they could never earn by themselves. Some notable theologians have suggested, and it it is only a suggestion, there is no hard and fast evidence one way or another, that this Mary 
is Mary Magdalene. And that Mary Magdalene had a very checkered past. Working as a prostitute at Magdala, which was a resort town used by Roman soldiers for their R&R. If this was the case, and it is only an if, then you can see why Mary clung to the words and work of Jesus all the more closely. She could never be forgiven. She could never have been made clean by keeping the demands of the Jewish law. But here was hope. Here was deliverance. And it's actually true for each one of us here. Whatever our situation or standing, you may be the most moral and decent person in this building tonight. You may be someone who has just worked so hard to do the right thing. Maybe your understanding of religion and getting to God was that you, you had to be that moral person doing everything spotlessly. Well, God bless you, but can I tell you this? You never can perfectly keep the commands of God. We are born with this default setting that really screws us up and stains us. And you may be here, and you may have really screwed up your life and messed up your life and done things that you wish you had never done. Maybe you'd got into habits and addictions that you just wish you'd never done. Maybe you've seen things that you wish you had never seen. Maybe you entered into relationships you wish you'd never entered into. And could I tell you that you, just as the moral person in this building, can know forgiveness and life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever our situation, whatever our standing, we cling to Jesus, like Mary. We find in Jesus the only one who can deal with our sin, with our problems, with our separation. We look to him, we rest on him, we delight in him. And if you were to do that this evening... To put your faith and hope in Jesus alone. To ask him to forgive your rebellion and your shame and your sin. Then understand, this will not be without cost. You see, Martha didn't get it. She was more concerned with performance and outward show than with heart devotion to Jesus. And if you're going to start following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may well be misunderstood by many. By friends and family who just don't get it. By colleagues who will mock you. If tonight you, you come and you say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior, be my friend, I commit my life to you, and you go into work tomorrow and you said, I became a Christian last night, I tell you, your work colleagues will give you a rough time. They will mock you. It is so far out of their understanding, so outside the grid for them. Those of you who are studying, your fellow students will mock you and they will pity you. But to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour 
is to reorient your life for the glory of God. To experience deep joy. My sins are forgiven and meaning. I know who's in charge. And it means to find a friend who's done it all for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we uh, come into this place and look at this story, we thank you that it's, it's not a morality tale. It's not telling us that we've got to be the best sort of people that we can be. Lord, we want to do that, but we're going to fail and we're going to mess up. But we thank you that you've provided a way for failures and for sinners like us to be made clean, to be adopted into your family. Father, for those here in this building who still think that they are good enough and decent enough to get into heaven, uh, Father, please, open their eyes. And Father, for those who are feeling excluded and shunned, Father, help them to see the warm welcome that Jesus gives to all who will come in repentance and faith. And we ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to sing together as we close this part of the service and then we're going to be going straight into a time of